The flaws in Allen versus Farrow arguably stem from its determination to settle things once and for all and the uneven weighting of events and subjects it offers in the process. That's from Sophie Gilbert of The Atlantic, a review of Allen v. Farrow, which is our featured documentary this week. In addition to that, I'll be talking about David Duchovny's book, which I just powered through. But of course, it's time to talk Oscars, baby. I love what we're doing for Mount Rushmore, the worst Oscar nominations of all time. Nomination slash wins if you want to. I don't mind either way. And uh, we got Ben Zalsmer, who's an absolute stud. Ben's Oscar math, which we can find him on Twitter. The guy is a genius when it comes to predicting the Oscars. A movie buff. He actually works for the Mets. Uh, so he's great. You're going to love him. But we're going to talk about the Oscar nominations, right? So we're releasing this on a Monday because uh, I'm locked in, as all of you were. Listening to all the information, I'll give you what I'm most excited about, what I'm most disappointed about, what I'm most shocked by. But first, news involving the Oscars, and I love this. They're going to socially distance, okay? Grammy Awards were last night, a little bit of it outside, wearing masks, smart. So same thing, Academy Awards can be held in two locations, at least. Dolby Theater, as originally planned, but also at the iconic Los Angeles Railway Hub Union Station. The Academy previously suggested the ceremony may include other remote locations as well. Surprise announcement came this morning from Priyanka Chopra, love her, and Nick Jonas, okay? Union Station built in 1939, the site of many films over the years, including The Dark Knight Rises, Blade Runner, and Pearl Harbor. Dolby Theater has been site of the Oscars since 2002, when it was known as the Kodak Theater. This will not be the first time the Oscars has been held in two locations. However, as the ceremony was previously held as a bi-coastal event for several years during the 1950s. So that's interesting. Joe, your thoughts on the Oscars being outside, which to me seems like a no-brainer. Late April in L.A., weather's beautiful. You got masks on, just socially distanced, and hopefully you can have a lot of nominees there. Yeah, I don't know why they just don't do that every year. They have the weather for it. I'm all for it. If they're socially distancing, if they're showing that they're being safe, I know it's on everyone's mind. So to be in a, a cool venue like that railway station, I'm all for it. Yeah, I uh, I agree with you. It's definitely going to be iconic, as I mentioned. Those other movies have been there. So it's definitely going to be very, very cool. So nominations came out today. Mank is your front runner, at least in terms of nominations, which is amazing because it has not fared so well on the award circuit. Ten nominations, including Best Director, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Picture. So if this is the first cinephile you're listening to, you're not a big movie fan, you go, wow, I guess Mank is a front runner. But I would argue it's not going to win any of those awards. It's not going to win Best Picture. It's not going to win Best Director. It's not going to win Best Actor. It's best chance of those four is Supporting Actress for Amanda Seyfried. Uh, but I'm not totally convinced that's going to happen. Now, Falling behind with six nominations, the actual favorite is Nomadland. That's got six. The Father, terrific dementia drama, which I reviewed. Judas and the Black Messiah, the only big contender from a major studio. That's Warner Brothers. The rest of these are streaming. A24, that kind of stuff. So that's interesting. Minari, thrilled. As I told you, that was uh, my second favorite movie of the year after I finally saw it a few weeks ago. Currently, uh, I think it's on one of the streamers. It is somewhere. Uh, Nomadland is on Hulu, by the way. The Trial of the Chicago 7, which I was lukewarm on. I'm even more lukewarm when I see Aaron Sorkin getting nominated again for screenplay. Thank God he was not nominated for director. Sorry, Mark Simon. Emerald Fennel's Promising a Woman. Sam Surface fired up. Five nominations there. I mean, that's huge. Going in, you knew Carrie Mulligan, but to get Best Actress? I mean, Best Director? I mean, that's uh, Best Picture. That's huge. But of course, what I'm most excited about is Sound of Metal. I mean, I was uh, just whooping it up with glee. I knew Riz Ahmed was going to get nominated for Best Actor, but the fact that the movie's up for Best Picture, that is a welcome, pleasant surprise. The fact that Paul Racy is up for Best Supporting Actor, I was through the roof excited about. 72 years old, Oscar nominee for the first time. That is so, so cool. And the film's up for screenplay. I mean, all along, I've been telling everyone from my rooftops here, my buddy John from MLB Network's laughing. It's my favorite movie of all time. Well, I've been telling you, it's the best movie of 2020. It's not just a Riz Ahmed movie. And the Oscars 
rewarded me. They said, yeah, you're right. Best picture, best screenplay, best supporting actor, best sound, best sound editing. I'm like, let's go. Six nominations. Um, and of course, on a personal note, Riz is the first Muslim actor ever nominated for best actor. I was thrilled. Uh, Mahershala Ali was the first one ever to win uh, best supporting actor. One day, Joe's going to have a guy who's half Swedish, half Puerto Rican, get an Oscar nomination. He's going to be thrilled about that. So listen, we've all got we've all got a dog in the race here. And so I was very, very happy for Riz because uh, I shared backgrounds here. And of course, it is a great, great movie. Now, as far as surprises, best supporting actor, Lakeith Stanfield, or Judas and the Black Messiah, along with Daniel Kaluuya. So you go, wow, did not see that coming. And I'm getting tweets from everybody and text messages. I don't understand. Well, here, I'll understand it for you. This is from my man, Scott Feinberg. Nobody predicted Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Stanfield getting nominated in this category for Judas. Stanfield was being pushed as a lead, Kaluuya as a supporting actor. But unlike with the SAG Awards, where a studio's category preference is automatically accepted, or the Golden Globes, where a studio's category preference is either approved or overturned before nomination voting, members of the Academy's acting branch decide for themselves which category a performer belongs in. See Kate Winslet with The Reader 12 years ago. In this case, Kaluuya was top bill, but had already been recognized with Best Supporting Actor, Critics' Choice, and Golden Globe Awards, which probably confused matters, and Stanfield had received no precursor attention at all. I would bet that both actors received plenty of votes in both categories. In fact, one or both may have even made the top five in both categories, but ever since Barry Fitzgerald was nominated as a lead and a supporting actor for the same performance in 1944's Going My Way, it has been the rule that a performer can only be nominated in the category in which he or she receives more votes. That's from Scott Feinberg of The Hollywood Report, who does an amazing job. So this was kind of shocking. You get Stanfield and Kaluuya. Kaluuya, I think, is the favorite to win. We knew he was going to get nominated, but Stanfield gets in there as well. That was definitely shocking. Um, more surprises. Did not think Ma Rainey's Black Bottom would get snubbed for Best Picture or One Night in Miami. That's a surprise. And no Best Director nod for the beautiful and talented Regina King. Two of the year's best films. Both of them. They've gotten tons of nominations. Golden Globes, BAFTAs, and SAGs, except did not get nominated for the Best Picture. Ma Rainey's up for five total nods. Actor, actress, costume design, production design, makeup, and hairstyling. One that made me just three nominations. Underwhelming. Best Supporting Actor, one of my favorite performances of the year. The great Leslie Odom Jr. as one of my favorite singers, Sam Cooke. I'm thrilled he's up for it. Best Adapted Screenplay is great news uh, for the writer who adapted Kemp Powers. He adapted his own uh, play. And Best Original Song, again, the great Leslie Odom Jr., but no uh, big categories there for Ma Rainey and One Night. That is surprising. More snubs. Defy Bloods. Terrence Blanchard is one of the great trumpeters of all time. I saw him in concert in Toronto. The guy's unbelievable. Spike Lee's longtime collaborator. The only nomination. This film got rave reviews from critics. Did not do well in the previous awards run-up. You thought maybe you'll get some surprises. No. Pat Bozeman, best supporting actor? No. And the big one. Delroy Lindo. Hashtag justice for Delroy Lindo. One of the year's most emotional performances. Dan Stanzik thought he was overacting. I think it's a great performance. I think he's a great actor. He's been doing it for a long time. Loved him as West Indian Archie. I mean, he was great in Malcolm X. Loved him in Crooklyn. Uh, he's just one of the good actors for a long, long time. Maybe he was hurt. I had a friend of mine, Dan Skip Allen, saying, maybe he's hurt by the fact, as odd as this sounds, because he plays a Trump supporter in the movie. He's wearing a MAGA hat. Maybe liberal Hollywood said, no, we can't support the guy who supports Trump. That seems like an odd, odd idea. Maybe. I think the bigger reason was the movie came out in June. Uh, recency bias, that's often an issue. Uh, more pleasant surprises. I really wanted to see Borat for Best Picture. Okay, it didn't happen. But Maria Bakalova out for Best Supporting Actress. That's awesome. And Best Adapted Screenplay is great. So now Borat has been two-time Oscar nominee 
for screenplays, the original and the sequel. So that is just awesome news uh, for Sasha Baron Cohen and company. Pretty funny seeing uh, Priyanka Chopra Jones, by the way, see the entire name. Borat's subsequent movie film delivery a prodigious bribe to American regime for make benefit once glorious nation of Kazakhstan. And here's more good news. Best Director, finally, you got more than one woman nominated. Chloe Jaw and Promising Young Woman's Emerald Fennel both nominated. First time ever you get two women nominated for Best Director. Could have been three with Regina King. Uh, Catherine Bigelow, the only one who's ever won. That was for The Hurt Locker. But to see uh, two women nominated for Best Director is pretty cool. As we get to Oscars So White, well, this year it was not. A whole lot more diversity in the nominees. I mentioned Riz. Another nominee I'm thrilled for, Steven Yeun. First time ever Asian American is up for Best Actor. He's up for Minari. That's the kind of performance that normally does not get recognized. He's so subtle. He's so quiet in the movie. My wife tells me he's great in The Walking Dead, so I'm happy for Steven Yeun. That's awesome news. Nine of the 20 nominees are people of color. Would have liked to have seen 10 for Delroy, but nine of 20. Good news. Which gets us to the absolute worst nomination, Glenn Close for Hillbilly Elegy. I mean, one of the worst movies of the year, a great actress giving a very bad performance, hamming it up underneath prosthetics and a bunch of homespun, corny, southern fried cliches. I mean, it is just so ridiculous that she's nominated for Best Supporting Actress. The only thing I can tell you is this. At least the other nominees I'm good with. Like I said, it better be Bakalova, who's in, and Yu Jung Yoon for Minari, and she is in. Thank God, the grandma who was amazing. Would love to see either of those win. If Glenn Close took away the nomination from either of them, I would have been more livid. But that is, without question, the worst nominee of the year. Uh, I'm thrilled to see Onward up for feature film. We all know Soul's going to win, but I, I, I have a soft spot for Onward. Uh, my son Shaz loves gorillas, so we're big on the one and only Ivan, which I did see get an Oscar nomination. I can't remember the category. It might have been visual effects. I was thrilled to see one and only Ivan. Uh, best visual effects, yes. It's up against Mulan, Tenet, The Midnight Sky, Love and Monsters. Let's go the one and only Ivan. Shout out to Brian Cranston. Um, also, love seeing for best uh, a score. I believe it's going to be Soul, which would be amazing. Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross, John Batiste, an awesome score. Although James Newton Howard always brings the heat with News of the World. News of the World, very much snub. Tom Hanks, Paul Greengrass, not getting much love at all. And then the, actually the biggest shock of them all, like everyone's talking about Stanfield, the biggest shock for me, I'm telling you right now, director. So Fennel, Promising Young Woman. Chloe Jaw, Nomadland. Lee Isaac Chung Minari, thrilled with that. David Fincher, Mank, okay, fine. Lifetime Achievement Award. This one did not see it coming. I thought it would be Regina King. Instead, it's Thomas Vinterberg for another round. Stunning. The great Danish filmmaker. I had seen him nominated for nothing. Uh, absolutely stunned. Uh, I can't wait to watch it. Joe was telling me off air, it's actually on Hulu. So I cannot wait to watch another round. The story is, it's about a guy just miserable with life, just ends up getting blasted all the time. So he's just drunk all the time. That's why it's called Another Round. 51-year-old Thomas Vinterberg, the director behind it. Mads Mikkelsen is the star of it. Um, if you know Vinterberg's work, The Celebration, 1998, pretty famous movie, and The Hunt, 2012, is excellent. That's also with Mads Mikkelsen. So another round, by the way, unsurprisingly, is up for Best Foreign Film, which I look forward to seeing. Best Documentary, I've reviewed Time. That did get nominated. And last one, shout out here for Cinephile, Best Live Action Short Film, Two Distant Strangers gets nominated, which is great news because we had Joey Badass on the podcast. We had Lawrence Bender. So thanks to Ben Lyons for hooking that up. And uh, I'm so happy I traded messages with Trayvon. Great to see that film get recognized best live action short film that is my smorgasbord of thoughts joe what do you got you know and then i am looking i just want to back you up on regina king i was hoping that she would have gotten nominated for best director or at least best picture in some part i cannot wait to watch another round though and i think 
You're right. Recency bias is playing a big key with the five bloods. Lakeith Stanfield over Chadwick Boseman, Delroy Lindo, and uh, Jared Leto is getting a little bit of hype going into these nominations. He's not nominated for Supporting Actor. I also did not realize that this will be Glenn Close's eighth Oscar nomination. If she does not win, she'll tie Peter O'Toole for the most acting nominations without a win. If she does not win, Adnan, she is effectively the Dan Marino of acting. (laughs) And I'm not even counting Dan Marino's role in Ace Ventura Beck Detective, which would technically make him the Dan Marino of acting. But she will be up there, so we'll see. I don't know how she got nominated and... For me, it'll come down to either Mank or The Sound of Metal for best sound. I'm personally polling for The Sound of Metal. Um, also, I, you might hate to hear me say this, but I think Sorkin will win original screenplay. I think Hollywood loves him just a little bit too much, that they will push him over the edge. The script that had just been buried for years trying to be made, then it finally comes to light, and Hollywood's going to reward him. Uh, the biggest surprise for me, Adnan, Eurovision Song Contest, best original song. This is a movie I reviewed on Cinephile last August. Husavik is the name of the song. I was happy to see that nominated, but... The main point I wanted to bring to you was, even though Jodie Foster won the Golden Globe, she was not nominated. Tahar Rahim, not nominated. In fact, the Martanian wasn't nominated for a single Oscar from what I can see. So how do you feel about that? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up, Joe. I forgot to mention, Jodie Foster, isn't that hilarious? You win a Golden Globe. This shows how pointless the Golden Globes are when you try to use them as an Oscar predictor. She wins the Globe, can't even get nominated. As I told you in my review, I thought she was fine, but I, I have no issue with her not being nominated. Um, although, having said that, now I would have liked to see her nominated ahead of Glenn Close. Take that. I would have seen Jodie Foster, Mauritanian, ahead of Glenn Close. Tahar Rahim, I love, but honestly, when I look at the nominees, I mean, Riz should win. He's not going to win. Chadwick's going to win. He's great. Anthony Hopkins, amazing. And Steven Yeun, I loved him in Ari. So really, I'm fighting for one slot for Best Actor. I personally would have nominated Tahar Rahim for the Mauritanian ahead of Gary Oldman for Mank. But I've always loved Gary Oldman's work, and, and he is really good in Mank, playing another overweight drunk, just as he was in Darkest Hour when he won an Academy Award. So no major issue with that. But yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up the Foster. I would have substituted Foster for Close, Rahim for Oldman. That's just me personally. And uh, you're right about Sorkin. God, I think he's probably going to win, which is just insufferable. Like, as my friend Adam Amin said, listen, we, we all like Sorkin. The guy's brilliant. I would have liked to, you know, I, I like the movie. I would have liked to love it. And instead, it's getting nominated like it's one of the best pictures of the year. And that's, that's where you get angry. You're going to hang on. It's fine. It's not one of the best pictures of the year. And that's where you get annoyed because not only nominated, but like you said, it's probably going to win, which is ridiculous. Uh, I look forward to the Gold Derby odds. As I said, I'm just freestyling here extemporaneously. I haven't actually looked to see what the odds are of winning, but just, you know, cursory look. No Madland for picture, director uh, Chloe Zhao, uh, actor is going to be uh, Bozeman. Actress, I think, is interesting. Like, actress, if you'd asked me a while ago, this is Francis McDormand, maybe Carrie Mulligan wins. Like, I'm curious what happens with the SAGs. She might win for Promising Young Woman. Maybe she's carrying the torch for that film. I did like seeing Andrew Day get nominated for the United States versus Billie Holiday. I believe that film's lone nomination. I just reviewed that last week in Cinephile. She's amazing. So I'm happy to see that um, work get recognized. But yeah, that's funny, but original song, I, I did hear Will Ferrell, I think he was on Feinberg's podcast, so that's funny that the Eurovision Song Contest got mentioned. Um, Greyhound, I remember we talked about that film, it's only up for like best sound. I, again, being a sound guy, Joe can appreciate this, the fact Soul, Sound of Metal, Soul, News of the World, Mank are up for best sound. Interesting if Mank wins for best sound, because again, as I said in my review of the movie, I mean, I liked it, I didn't love it, it wasn't in my top 10, I, you liked it more than I did, Joe, but I do think the sound was amazing, because it not only looked like a 1930s movie, but it sounded like a 1930s movie, which is a hell of an accomplishment. 100%. And I think Hollywood, especially the Academy Awards, they love 
you know, movies about Hollywood, especially old Hollywood. And I think that that could push it over the edge. But I still think that it should go to Sound of Metal because what they did, how they played with him losing his hearing, regaining his hearing, it, it was something that I, as someone who's really into sound and looks for it, that, I thought that was so impressive. So I still hope that that wins. Scott Rogowski has been hyping up The White Tiger to me on Netflix. I just don't have much of an interest in seeing it. Uh, but Ramin Barani did get nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. So maybe I will get around to watching that. <laughs> Um, and best original screenplay, as Joe mentioned, Trial of Chicago 7, Sorkin. God, I'd love to see Son of Metal win. That would be amazing if they could win for screenplay. Promise Young Woman could win. Emerald Fennel, that'd be nice. And Minari, Lee Isaac Chung, amazing. Plus Judas and the Black Messiah. So uh, that's pretty cool. That best original screenplay, I'm going fast. Let me repeat that. Judas and the Black Messiah, Minari, Promise Young Woman, Sound of Metal, The Trial of Chicago 7. It's the first time ever in Oscar history. All five of those nominees, five nominees for Best Original Screenplay, are up for Best Pictures. That's very, very cool. Uh, cinematography, I mentioned News of the World did not do well. They did get up for cinematography. Got to be Nomadland, though. I thought Joshua James Richards did an amazing job with it, up against Judas, Mank, and The Trial of Chicago 7. Maybe because Mank is in black and white, has a chance. I'm curious to see more of these documentaries. Um, Collective, Crip Camp, The Mole Agent, my Octopus Teacher, which Ben Lyons loves. We'll see that on Netflix. And Time, which I've already seen. That's uh, on Amazon Prime. Hopefully I can get my hands on some of these uh, documentary shorts and all that kind of stuff. Film editing is always interesting. The Father, Nomadland, Promising a Woman, Sound of Metal, A Trial of Chicago 7. I agree with all those, with the exception of 7. Uh, and the foreign films, listen, I, hopefully we can find these. Another Round, Denmark, Better Days on Hong Kong, Collective from Romania, The Man Who Sold His Skin from Tunisia, and Kovadis Aida, that's from Bosnia and Herzegovina. So uh, I got to be honest, I've only heard of one of those, which is Another Round, uh, but hopefully I'll get to see some of those other foreign films as well. All right, after the break, I review Alan V. Farrow, David Duchovny's new book, The Mount Rushmore Worst Oscar-nominated Movies, and we speak with Academy Award expert Ben Zalzmer. Don't go anywhere. Well, now it's time to get serious and talk about Alan V. Farrow, HBO documentary from award-winning investigative filmmakers Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering and Amy Hurdy. Four-part documentary series goes behind decades of sensational headlines to reveal the private story of one of Hollywood's most notorious and public scandals, the accusation of sexual abuse against Woody Allen involving Dylan, his then seven-year-old daughter with Mia Farrow, their subsequent custody trial, the revelation of Allen's relationship with Farrow's daughter, Sun Yi, and the controversial aftermath in the years that followed. Once celebrated for their on-and-off-screen partnership, Farrow and Allen's lives were irrevocably fractured, and their sprawling family torn apart with the public discourse of the abuse allegations and the vitriolic disputes that followed. It's powerful stuff. Four-part documentary series on HBO just wrapped up on Sunday. I vowed never to watch a Woody Allen movie again after the 2014 Golden Globes, which they talk about in the movie, and that was a really big point. That's where he was being feted by all these stars. Emma, uh, Diane Keaton came on stage and started talking about how funny he is and charming he is, and Emma Stone talks about some of the greatest screenplays of all time and a bounty of one-liners. And that's when Ronan Farrow tweeted, oh, I just saw this tribute from all these Hollywood actresses. Did they mention the fact that he abused a seven-year-old girl? And that's what inflamed everything. And at that time... You know, everyone had always known, okay, Woody Allen and Mia Farrow have a tumultuous relationship, and there's been stuff that's dogged him, but that really brought it back to the forefront. And Dylan Farrow had written in the New York Times a very powerful op-ed that Woody Allen had abused her and had molested her when she was seven years old. And it's amazing how 
that's been around, but kind of buried. And then it was brought to the forefront. And he still made movies. Let's be clear. I remember 2016, 2017, you can double check. Wonder Wheel came out with Kate Winslet. I remember I got the screener. I didn't watch it. Not trying to get my high horse. I'm just saying, you know, it, but to be clear, if it was nominated for Best Picture, I probably would have seen it. But I heard it was average Woody Allen. I go, well, this guy kind of nauseates me. I'll just leave it. And now the guy can't get a movie made in America. Uh, Rainy Day in New York, which the movie mentions, that's only been seen worldwide. You, you literally can't get a distribution deal in America. He's done in America. And that's because it wasn't just 2014, but then again, 2018. Dylan Farrell again came public with their accusations. And then finally the tide turned. And it became, hey, we can't keep supporting Woody Allen. Like, what are we doing here, guys? Like, this guy's got a horrible, horrible past. And when you go through these names, Harvey Weinstein, you know, just a horrific stretch of rape and sexual assault and so much worse. That's why he's in prison. Bill Cosby, his entire legacy dismayed and brought asunder by his sexual actions of rape and harassment and abuse and all the rest of it. Assault. Prison. Roman Polanski, who has the movie, makes an excellent point of mentioning, like, guys at Quentin Tarantino defend Polanski. Like, he's on with Howard Stern. He's like, you know, he had sex with a 13-year-old girl, but it was was consensual. Like, wait, what? He's like, well, it's only statutory rape. I'm like, how can you defend this guy? And Polanski won an Oscar for the penis, which I was enraged by, because, of course, it beat Scorsese's Gangs of New York. Like, so this guy, for Chinatown, which is a brilliant movie from 1974, wins an Academy Award you know, 25 years later, even though everyone knows what happened to this guy, and he's living as a fugitive in Europe. Like, this is the Academy going, all right, well, don't judge the people, judge the art, the guy's a great artist, okay. But then for Tarantino, be like, oh, you know, I believe his version over the girl. I'm like, wait, what? And this is where society has changed. If the Me Too movement has taught us anything, anything, believe the woman, okay? In the past, it was, she's lying, she's a gold digger, she's got it out for him. No, 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 no. This is all lies. And as Alan V. Farrell points out brilliantly, for years, rich, white, powerful men can obfuscate and overcome any damning allegations with smart lawyers, with a lot of money, and with a lot of clout. And Woody Allen has always been a celebrated filmmaker. As my wife was sitting there watching me, and she finds him repulsive, always has. The last movie I watched of his that I loved was Midnight in Paris. I thought it was great. He won an Oscar for it, by the way. So that's 2011, 2012. Love the guy who played Hemingway, Owen Wilson, etc. But as I said, I started to change in 14, 15. I go, I can't watch this guy's movies anymore. And my wife never could stand him. And she's like, is he really that good a filmmaker? And I said, oh, yeah. She goes, no, come on. I go, no, listen. If you want to separate the person, Annie Hall is a great film. Manhattan is a gorgeous... I think Manhattan might be his best movie. Gorgeously shot, black and white, Gershwin score. Amazing. Uh, Deconstructing Harry is really funny. Bullets Over Broadway is hysterical. I go, that is a great parody of the theater. Cusack, Diane Weiss won an Oscar. I haven't even seen some of his bigger films, like Crimes and Misdemeanors, um, or Husbands and Wives. I've seen Take the Money and Run, early stuff like that. But I go, no, of course. He's funny. He's brilliant. But what happens is this. Nobody believes the woman. And the story comes out, oh, she's upset. She's bitter. And so this is, this is the playbook for the rich white celebrity, male. Mia's bitter because I left her for her stepdaughter, which, to be clear, that's already pretty disturbing. Like, when you actually watch the story, like, if I told Joe I left my, my, my wife actually is a couple of kids from a previous relationship, and I'm leaving my wife for her step, for my stepdaughter, her daughter. It's like, wait, what? Like, already on its surface, you're like, that's pretty disturbing. And if you want to go with, well, they were never married, they didn't live together, okay, fine. But honestly, <coughs> by any measure, it's disturbing that he left me a pharaoh for Sukin Yi, who was, I believe, 16 or 17 when he first met her and then eventually married her. So already, it's just gross. Now, we get to the Dylan Farrow stuff. So the playbook is, 
Uh, Mia's upset because I left her for her stepdaughter. No, I left her for my daughter. Whatever the hell you want to phrase it. I left her for Mia's daughter, which is my stepdaughter. So she's bitter. So she uh, she coached Dylan to make this stuff up, to make me look bad, to bring me down, etc. Meantime, as the documentary strongly shows, in the court case in 92, 93, 94, whatever it was, like the prosecutor said they had probable evidence to charge Woody Allen. Like, boom, sexual abuse. Absolutely. Like they had probable cause. But because of his lawyers... Because of the clout, oh, New Yorkers love Woody Allen. Like, Woody Allen is New York. Oh, I love his movies. These guys get a break. They get a pass because he's funny and he's self-deprecating and he's rich and he's got these lawyers who use every trick in the book. Mia's jealous. Mia's bitter. Mia's career is over because it depended on Woody. She's making this stuff up. She's jilted. She's jealous. And ultimately, you go, why would this girl make this up? Why would Dylan Farrell really make this up? Do you really think she'd be coached by her mom to make Woody Allen look that bad? And as the documentary proves in detail, Dylan Farrow's story has never wavered. She has told the story over and over. Seven years old, Woody Allen took me up to the attic, made me look at a train set, touched me in my private parts. And what is most revelatory about this documentary is you have the video shot on camcorder by Mia Farrow, which had not previously been released. And she had said, I kept it because we couldn't get to the police right away and I just wanted to have evidence of it. And you see a little girl saying, yep, he touched me here, he touched me here, I didn't like it, I didn't like it, etc. And it's not hysterical, she's not angry, she's saying it in a very plain-spoken manner you'd be fitting of a seven-year-old. And you watch this documentary and you go, I don't know how Woody Allen is still walking among us, I don't know how you can watch any of his movies, and thank God we finally believe Dylan Farrell. And the only happy ending of this is that she's lived a life of trauma, Mia Farrow's been disgraced, discredited, etc. You still got guys who I deeply admire, like Alec Baldwin, who go to war for Woody Allen and defend him, which I'll never really understand. But towards the end, in 2018, credit to Natalie Portman, who publicly said, I believe Dylan Farrow, and Kate Winslet, who said, I'm sorry, I made Wonder Wheel with him. I regret it, uh, and I believe Dylan Farrow. Timothee Chalamet said, I regret working with Woody Allen. I'm taking my entire salary. I'm donating it to charity. And at least the tide turned. At least somebody who had been victimized finally had a voice. Now, I believe all of it. If there's a weakness in the documentary, and why I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs is this. It doesn't actually show any of Woody Allen's side. There's a little bit, but not much. They use audio recordings from his book to kind of tell his side of the story. But I would have liked to have seen Robert B. Weedy, this director who loves him, Alec Baldwin, uh, Diane Keaton. I would have liked to have seen them defending him against these charges because that would have been um, a lot more provocative. I went run review, which said it's kind of like watching a trial and you just hear from the prosecution, you don't hear from the defense. Maybe this is kind of like what my buddy Rick Passman would say a Michael Moore documentary. It's all one side, it's not a documentary, it's completely subjective. You're just telling one side of the story. But you know what? Dylan Farrow's story deserves to be told. Mia Farrow's story deserves to be told. If you watch all four hours, I don't know how you come away from this not thinking you're deeply sympathetic. I know it's a he said, he said. I know Woody Allen has his version. But I promise you right now, folks, if you watch this, I don't know how you can in good conscience ever support Woody Allen. Allen v. Farrow, it's on HBO, Three and a Half Maple Leafs. Joe? And then I'm also curious about, you've mentioned Dylan Farrow, who actually experienced this terrible thing, and her younger brother, Ronan Farrow, who has now made a name for himself uh, as a reporter and a journalist. Does the documentary go into, you know, how he saw it as a kid and then how he saw it as an adult after he actually read these court cases? Yeah, thanks so much for mentioning that, Joe. So Ronan's fascinating, right? Brilliant guy, super smart, uh, Catch and Kill, of course, very famous book. Uh, He talks about this, and he's very, very strong in the documentary. He says, when Dylan was saying, I'm going to say what happened, he kept telling her to shut up. 
He goes, shut up. Nobody wants to hear this. Like, forget about it. Whatever. Whatever what he did, like, whatever. Screw it. Like, no. And he said early on, naturally, of course, he loved his dad. Like, that's his dad. But then he realized what kind of a person he was, how horrible he was, and they became distanced from him and made a name for himself um, with supporting UN causes and stuff in Darfur and really became close to his mother and became a really great journalist who helped to, you know, take down Weinstein and all the rest of it. But he was telling his own sister, knock it off. Nobody cares. Move on with your life. You can't take down Woody. Forget it. So it's interesting how the documentary shows he was reluctant to help his sister, but once he saw that spectacle at the Golden Globes and all these women fawning over Woody Allen, Diane Keaton, Emma Stone, Julia Roberts, all of them, he goes, you know what, F this. And that's when he sent the tweet, and eventually he used his juice to get um, Dylan Farrow's op-ed written and published in the New York Times. And the New York Times editor goes, we normally don't do this, but it was so well-written and so strong, we said, let's do it. Maybe 10 years ago, he said, no, Woody Allen has too much juice. He'll sue us. He'll do that. Whatever. We're doing this. This is important right now. The women need to be heard. And Ronan Farrow, I think, should be lauded for the way he stuck, stuck by his sister and uh, was able to get her side of it out. Now, again, I'd love to see a Woody Allen documentary. I really would. Like, I'd like to be open-minded. I'd like to see his version and literally go through it systematically. What about Dylan Farrow's videotape? What about her story? What about this? But it, I'm saying the same crap, Joe. Oh, she's making it up. Uh, they're just trying to discredit me. Like, why, why would a, why would a seven year old girl make that up at, at that age? Like, it's one thing if you say as a twenty year old you make it up. Here's the other part of it, though. Moses, <clears throat> one of the adopted kids. There's, I believe, nine, ten adopted kids from Mia Farrow. Moses is one of them. He's the only one who's on Woody's side. So, what do you think is more realistic, Moses Farrow or Alan, whatever the hell his name is? He's accurate in saying, no, no, it's all lies. Or Woody told him, Moses, come on my side. I'll give you fifty million dollars, whatever the hell you want. Like, just just defend me. Like. I, when you're telling me nine to one, I mean, they show literally the other siblings in the Pharaoh household who say, yeah, Woody was abusive or he was demonstrative or, and they don't kill him. Like, well, listen, they go, there are moments, yeah, he was a good dad. He was funny. He was sweet. Took us fishing, all that stuff. But ultimately, if you ask me to pick a side, I'm picking Dylan Pharaoh's side. That's what her own siblings are saying. Um, it just shows you what an incredibly messy, messy marriage it was. And Mia says, I regret ever meeting him. And she goes, I get it. I get it for people out there. You go, man, I just love Woody Allen. He just makes great movies, right? He's just funny. He's charming. He's smart. You see all that stuff. You go, how could that guy be a molester? How could he abuse a child? That would never happen. And there's one really strong section where they show Woody Allen. He's got some serious problems as far as being an old man in love with young women. Like this guy combed through all of his screenplays. I mean, Manhattan's about a 42-year-old in love with a 17-year-old girl. And what he does is, typical abuser, he's, he turns the tables. He makes it look like he's the victim. So Marilyn Hemingway's character, 17 years old, is in love with him. He's not pursuing her. She's pursuing him. What am I supposed to do? The 17-year-old chick's all over me, you know? Huh? What are you going to do? And, like, it's just, it's, it's just reprehensible how much of his own um, predilections come through in his work. I mean, I get it. We've all got desires, and I guess he should be applauded for putting it out there. But after a while... You see a lot of patterns here. Old guy, always in love with young women. And we're not talking 25-year-olds. We're talking high school girls. And there's, in fact, a high school girl in there who says, yes, I had a relationship with Woody Allen. She's like 16 years old. You're like, dude. So like, at, at its very least, if you don't believe the Dylan Farrell allegation, the fact that he left his girlfriend for her, for her daughter and like has a serious issue here with dating young women and had a relationship with a teenage girl, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that is just gross about Woody Allen, as great a filmmaker as he is. But I'm glad you mentioned the Ronan Farrow stuff. He, he's, I just think he's really bright, Joe. When you watch him, you go, this guy's just articulate, he's smart, he's, he comes across as very convincing. Yeah, and I, I guess, I don't know what there might be, if there's something to be said about this, but 
Woody Allen, this notoriously great writer, one of the all-time great writers, and then his two children effectively taking him down through their sensational writing ability <laughs> and being yeah. able to pinpoint him on that, you know? That's a great point, man. You're right, because their writing is so strong, and um, it's heartbreaking, man. It really is to see this kind of life, the way that's been led. And uh, again, I credit HBO, I credit the filmmakers for bringing it to case, and ultimately, I applaud the courage of Dylan Farrow and Mia Farrow and Ronan Farrow for trying to bring this case to justice because it really is just awfully sad, all the uh, the pain that she's been through. Um, I forgot to actually my physical copy, truly like lightning, so I'm not going to read through excerpts like I did with the Ethan Hawke book, but I'll, I'll read the, the background of it and I'll read a couple of reviews because it's really, really good. I'll make it quick. For the past 20 years, Bronson Powers, former Hollywood stuntman and converted Mormon, has been homesteading deep in the uninhabited desert outside Joshua Tree with his three wives and 10 children. Bronson and his wives, Yalula, Mary, and Jackie, have been raising their family away from the corruption and evil of the modern world. Their insular existence, controversial, difficult, but Edenic, is upended when the ambitious young developer, Maya Abadessa, stumbles upon their land. Hoping to make a profit, she crafts a wager with the family that sets in motion a deadly chain of events. Maya, threatening to report the family to social services, convinces them to enter three of their children into a nearby public school. Bronson and his wives agree that if Maya can prove that the kids do better in town than in their desert oasis, they will sell her a chunk of their priceless plot of land. Suddenly confronted with all the complications of the 21st century that they try to keep out of their lives, the powers must reckon with their lifestyles as they try to save it. Truly like Lightning, David Duchovny's fourth novel, a heartbreaking meditation on family, religion, sex, greed, human nature, etc., um, I'll give you this blurb here from the Washington Post. David Duchovny's most complex novel is also the best of the batch and makes a solid case for him as a real deal novelist. It's a provocative, entertaining book that much like Tom Wolfe did, exposes our collective foibles and makes everybody look a little cartoonish, but it, persi- wait, phew, but it persuades you that we deserve the caricature he's made of us. Duchovny earns the wide canvas he's stretched. He has a cinematic understanding of how to keep his characters in motion and conflict, and Bronson's undiluted Mormonism gives Duchovny a metaphor for American reinvention. We could use more David Duchovny novels. Funny, big picture, irreverent. Mark Athakikis of the Washington Post and Philip Cesar of San Francisco Book Review, truly like Nightning, an emotionally captivating tour de force from start to finish. David Duchovny fires on all cylinders in penning a modern-day fish-out-of-water tale, a true must-read for 2021. And Samantha B. yeah, that's Samantha B. This beguiling book crackles with energy and intelligence. It makes you laugh, and then just when you think the ride is coming to an end, it delivers a right hook that leaves you aghast. It kind of broke my heart, and I loved every minute of it. It's a hell of a book. I'm shocked that David Duchovny is this good a writer. I mean, I read his previous book, Bucky F. and Dent, and listen, as an actor, X-Files wasn't my thing. My brother and my cousins, they're all into that stuff. All good. Um, I did like the first season of Californication. Really funny. Most importantly, love the fact he's boys with Shandling, was in the Larry Sanders show, hysterical, used to play basketball with Gary. But this guy's a legitimate writer. I mean, I, I read this book. Again, I don't have the excerpts in front of me, but as that review can uh, describe, Legit great writer. I mean, just his command of the English language, the economy of words, the scope of it, uh, the the deep delve into Mormonism. I thought it was amazing that we talked about religion and faith and uh, culture, pop culture references. One of the daughters loves the films of Philip Seymour Hoffman, which I love. Uh, Really, really strong. The best character is Robert Maloof, who is this Palestinian immigrant who is just this voracious creature. And he's just a Horrible, horrible person who looks to just take advantage of every single person. He's disfigured. He's missing a finger. He, uh, he's almost like the hunchback of Notre Dame, the way he describes him. Just a disfigured, horrible man. 
but like just an animal. Like he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. He's rapacious. That's the word for it. He's one of these rapacious land developers uh, who just prides himself on being greedy and carnivorous and tells everyone, Robert Maloof, you can call me Bob, Bob like De Niro. Uh, That character alone made the book worth reading. But if you're an avid reader, I really recommend Truly Like Lightning from David Duchovny. It's not just an actor writing a book. In terms of Ethan Hawke, that was an example that I thought, okay, that's an actor writing a book, really entertaining, but maybe it's uh, very meta. It's about an actor in the stage, all the rest of it. This is about a stuntman, so there is some Hollywood stuff. But this is, I'm telling you, it is like one of those broad, sweeping, grand American novels. Like, it kind of reminds me in some ways of like, uh, you know, something that uh, Steinbeck would write. Really, really amazing stuff. So if you're looking for a great book out there, Joe, I highly recommend David Duchovny's book, Truly Like Lightning. Reviews like this make me so upset because he's already such a talented person. And then you tell me he's also a fantastic writer with a great command of the English language. Do you think he could you know, try and get this option and adapt it himself. It's interesting. You know, I think he, I think he talked about that on Seth Meyers on one of these shows. He said, you know what? I could never do it because I think it's really hard to adapt your own work. I'd rather someone else adapt it. But he goes, but I wouldn't mind starring in it or directing it. So that's interesting. Maybe he would have somebody else write it. Okay, you tell me what's, what's good about it. You strip it of its essence and make it cinematic. And then I'll help make it. I'll produce it or I'll direct it or I'll star in it. Because it, it definitely is wide-reaching. I could definitely see it being a, a film, especially with the wide, sweeping vistas and, the like I said, some really carnivorous characters. So something to keep in mind. Coming up next, we'll speak with Academy Awards expert Ben Zausmer, plus the Mount Rushmore of worst Oscar-nominated movies. We've already given our thoughts about the Academy Awards, but honestly, there's no one better than Ben Zalzmer. You can follow him on Twitter, at Ben's Oscar Math. I'll give you his background before I tell you what a genius he is. Since 2012, he's been making math-based predictions of Oscar winners, first as a fun side project to share with his college friends at Harvard and now professionally. And now he predicts Oscar winners with incredible accuracy. Growing up in the Philadelphia suburbs, affinity for numbers, led him to join math leagues, a movie buff since childhood. He's also... On the baseball tip, currently the director of baseball analytics for the New York Mets. We're not going to talk baseball today. We're going to talk movies. First and foremost, Ben, this is when the Academy Awards get nominated. You've sent like 93 tweets today. Thanks for making a little bit of time here for Cinephile. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. So let's go through this. Uh, The thing I was happiest about was Sound of Metal, which I mentioned off the top of the podcast. I knew that Riz was going to get nominated. If it wasn't for Chadwick Boseman's unfortunate, untimely death, I think Riz would have a good chance at winning. I think we all know Boseman's going to win. Having said that, I was thrilled because I was checking your predictions, and you said Paul Racy was going to get in, and I was pessimistic because he did get the Critics' Choice nomination, but he was not up for a SAG nomination, was not up for a Golden Globe nomination. And then for Son of Mel to get a Best Picture nod, a Screenplay nod as well, I was overjoyed. Where were your numbers lining up? Because I said you nailed it with Racy, but where were you on Son of Metal getting a Best Picture nomination? Yeah, Sound of Metal was definitely uh, a mild surprise, if you will, this morning. Uh, it was looking just outside that top eight. We didn't know exactly how many nominees there would be. Uh, and so they should be pretty thankful this morning coming in, not just with the actor and supporting actor nominations, but also the best picture nod. With a film like that, how were you able to predict that Racy would get a supporting actor nomination? Because as I said, he was omitted for a couple of major categories. Uh, so, right. He did not uh, get the Golden Globe nomination, the SAG nomination. Uh, but Paul Racy did get a BAFTA and Critics' Choice nod, as well as a number of 
uh, Critics Circle nominations from various cities throughout the country. And so he didn't have as strong support from the data as, say, Daniel Kaluuya or Sasha Baron Cohen, but he did have enough to get him in the top five. All right. So the biggest the biggest shock of the day, Ben, is, well, there's a few big shocks, but this one I definitely did not see one person saying. The fact that Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Kaluuya would both get nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Now, Scott Feinberg was also tweeting with The Hollywood Reporter. He explained it, the fact that, listen, unlike the Golden Globes or the SAGs, you're going to pick where you're you know, trying to get the nomination. Here, it's wherever they get nominated the most. So, Stanfield probably got nominated for Best Actor, but he had more votes for Supporting Actor, similarly for Daniel Kaluuya. How unusual is this, though, when you look at Oscar history, to have two guys up for supporting actor, not just from the same movie, but both guys could arguably be the lead of the movie? We've seen it uh, on a number of occasions where two people from the same movie are both nominated for Best Supporting Actor. In fact, just last year, Al Pacino and Joe Pesci were both up for The Irishman. Uh, and then a couple years before that, Sam Rockwell and Woody Harrelson were both up for three billboards outside Edding, Missouri. Uh, the latter of those two, three billboards, That's probably a better comparison here because you could definitely make an argument that on the male side, those were the two most significant actors with Frances McDormand uh, on the actress side. uh, And yet both are in the supporting category. The Oscars tend to relegate people to the supporting category if it's a borderline call, all things equal. uh, And that's what they did here with Judas and the Black Messiah. Yeah, you had a great uh, stat here, but the fact that Lakeith Stanfield, the first person is Jonah Hill, Wolf of Wall Street, 2013, to receive a Best Supporting Actor nomination without being nominated by the Golden Globes, the SAGs, BAFTA, or the Critics' Choice Awards. That's a real upset there for Lakeith Stanfield. Um, The best nominations for me, Ben, were Sound of Metal. I was also thrilled for Minari. And Chloe Zhao uh, for Nomadland and Lee Isaac Chung for Minari. Uh, we all know Chloe's going to win, but this is the sixth and seventh directors of Asian descent to be nominated for Best Director. Ang Lee nominated three times, won twice. Bong Joon-ho won last year. How momentous is this to get both Chloe and Lee Isaac nominated for Director? It's very significant. There's a, a lot. When you look through this entire list, through 23 categories, 118 nominations, uh, of a lot of really significant firsts uh, or of significant uh, significant moments of the Oscars trying to be more inclusive. So you mentioned the Isaac Chung and Chloe Zhao both getting nominated for Best Director, more uh, Asian representation of the Oscars. Chloe Zhao and Emerald Fennell becoming the first pair of female directors nominated in the same year. Uh, Riz Ahmed, the first Muslim actor, being nominated for Best Actor. Uh, Stephen Yoon, the first, uh, Stephen Yoon, the first uh, Asian American to be nominated for Best Actor. Uh, and so on and so on. Uh, it's been really nice to see Uh, as the Oscars have tried to diversify their membership, that we've also seen uh, diversity in the the nominees themselves who are getting to uh, come to Los Angeles, or at least this year, (laughs) perhaps come virtually, depending on how they decide to do that. Yeah, and and you mentioned the diversity. Listen, nine of the 20 acting nominations are people of color, which is huge. Um, You mentioned the fact Riz, the first Muslim nominee, Stephen Yeun, the first Asian American. I mean, this is all great news. To quibble, I'd love to get it to 50%. And I would have loved to have seen Delroy Lindo up for Best Actor. That monologue alone I thought was marvelous, and he's had a remarkable career. I think the film was hurt by the fact that early release date on Netflix, people, people forget about it. We know this all the time. This happens, Ben. People just you know have recency bias. And maybe he was hurt by the fact the character is a Trump supporter, wears a MAGA hat. You know, I, I, I'm trying to find out why Delroy Lindo got left out in the cold. Those are my two theories. Any idea? Because when you look at the nominations, with your mathematics, it shouldn't be that surprising that he was left out. But going into the award season, everyone thought Linda was at least going to get nominated, might even win. You know, uh, I'll admit, uh, I, I don't make the math biased at all by what I think. Uh, the math is purely based on the numbers, but I am a movie fan. 
I watched Defy of Bloods. I thought it was fantastic. I thought Delroy Lindo was fantastic. Uh, and so I, I share your thoughts on that. Uh, I was surprised to not see him there this morning just from a movie fan perspective. Uh, but from the mathematical side, there were really four actors that were well ahead uh, from the statistics. That was uh, Ahmed and Bozeman and Hopkins and Oldman. Those four were sort of in a tier of their own. Uh, and then it was looking like Delroy Lindo and Steven Yeun kind of battling it out for that last spot. Uh, and the Oscars went with the actor from Menard. All right, so that's the stuff I'm happy about. Minari Sentimental specifically, a little bit miffed on Delroy Lindo's behalf. The, the worst nomination, it's not even close, Ben. Glenn Close up for Hillbilly Elegy. That was one of the worst movies of the year, and her performance was terrible. She's a great actress, but it's just a bunch of makeup and uh, corn fried cliches and overacting. I mean, it's awful. But she got the nomination because she's Glenn Close. It's her eighth Oscar nomination. As you pointed out, if she does not win, she would tie Peter O'Toole for the most acting nominations without a win. Remember thinking he was going to win for Venus. Does this mean Glenn Close is going to win for a terrible movie? Uh, I do not see Glenn Close as the favorite in this category, despite the fact that she has that sentimental pull. It's her eighth nomination because we saw this with arguably a stronger performance from her a couple of years ago when she was up against the same person, Olivia Coleman. Right. Uh, and sure enough, even that time, she went 0 for 7 despite being the favorite going in to that Oscar ceremony. So, uh, no, I think that there will definitely be voters out there that see an emotional pull for Glenn Close. But do I see it as so much of a pull that it vaults her into first place right now? No. Other uh, good news and notes for me. This tweet of Maria Bakalova, only the second Best Supporting Actress nominee from a sequel. The first was Talia Shire, The Godfather Part Two. That's a great nugget you put out there. And speaking of Borat, Sasha Baron Cohen, the first person in Oscars history to be nominated for writing and supporting actress slash actress in the same year, whether for the same film or different films. I did not think we'd see Oscar history from Sasha Baron Cohen if you asked me this a year ago, but I loved Borat. I'm a little lukewarm on Trial of the Chicago 7. I think it's... Uh uh, milk toast Sorkin. It's a little self-indulgent. It's a little tough to take at times, but I, I, his heart's in the right place, so to speak. But how about Sasha Baron Cohen and Bakalova putting that into historical perspective? Yeah, it's really, uh, it's really fantastic what both of them were able to do. With Bakalova, you know, she's a relative newcomer, comes on the scene for Borat, and not only gets nominated, but uh, is really in the top tier of those nominees. Her and, and Olivia Coleman were the two most likely nominees coming into today, and so both of them have a real shot of winning that category. Uh, and Sasha Baron Cohen was particularly impressive about the stat that he's the first person nominated for supporting actor and adapted screenplay in the same year is that he did it for different movies. I mean, you would think that if somebody's going to do it uh, at all for those two categories, it's going to be somebody who wrote the script and put themselves in the same movie as a supporting actor and they were able to get nominated in both. Uh, but the fact that he was so prolific this year that he's up for those two very different films uh, is very impressive. Yeah, Borat joining The Godfather, Lord of the Rings is the only three franchises with multiple films nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. So the, think about that. The Godfather, The Lord of the Rings, and Borat. That is a great trivia question you can stump your friends with. We're talking with Ben Zausmer. Once again, you can follow him on Twitter, at Ben's Oscar Math. Um, I mentioned that I did not see the Lakeith Stanfield coming for supporting actor. I was pleasantly surprised with The Sound of Metal. Here actually is the biggest shock, though, Ben, and I'm curious what your numbers were. Thomas Vinterberg up for Best Director for Another Round. Shocking. I didn't see that anywhere. 
Um, uh, Regina King obviously snubbed. I thought we might get three women nominated for Best Director. I'm not disputing it because I cannot wait to see another round, which is going to be up for Best Foreign Film. I love the concept of the story. Uh, Mads Mikkelsen's in it. And I know Vinterberg's work. Obviously, if you're a film fan, if you love foreign films, you know the Danish filmmaker. He has an excellent pedigree. But Thomas Vinterberg for another round, uh, stunning. Where were you on that in terms of being shocked by it? It, it was a big shock. There was really only one hint we got throughout award season. Uh, and that was the BAFTAs a couple weeks ago. The BAFTAs did nominate Thomas Vinterberg for another round for Best Director. Almost no one else did among the major predictors. Uh, and when it came out, I think a lot of people said, oh, the BAFTAs this year, it's a new voting system. They have a jury system. They've never done this before. They're not as predictive of the Oscars. Uh, but lo and behold, they were the only ones that got this pick right. Uh, and Thomas Vinterberg is now an Oscar nominee. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Like you said, they were able to get that right. Um Every year, you know, there's always a couple nominees that you say, well, would have liked to have seen that or that would have been nice. But I'll tell you one thing. This is a little surprising. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, 20th film to be nominated for Best Actor and Actress, but not Best Picture. But Viola Davis joins Kate Blanchett, Kate Winslet, Meryl Streep, and Michelle Williams. Only people with multiple Best Actress and multiple Best Supporting Actress nominations this century. And furthermore, Viola Davis becomes the most nominated ever, Black Actress ever. Isn't that remarkable? Yeah, what she's been able to do over this uh, these past you know, 15 years or so uh, ha- has been so impressive. There's so many different, very varied performances. Uh, and her and Marie's Black Bottom, along with Chadwick Boseman's performance, uh, was, according to many, enough to put Marie's Black Bottom in that Best Picture tier. Uh, the Oscars disagreed. Perhaps if this had been the first year where they'd required to have 10, like we're going to introduce next year, perhaps Marie's Black Bottom or One Night in Miami might have been able to make the cut. Uh, but this year, instead, they're just left with the actor and actress nomination. Uh, Frances McDormand's going for a third Best Actress win following Fargo and Three Billboards. That would put her alone in second place behind Katherine Hepburn with four. I, the, your first thought is, wait, what about Meryl Streep? But of course, Meryl Streep, one of those wins was for supporting, right? She won uh, for the Iron Lady, obviously, uh, for Best Actress. But she hasn't won three Best Actresses. It's three Oscars total, correct? Right. Best Actress, uh, she won for the Iron Lady. And Meryl Streep also won for Sophie's Choice. Uh, so she, along with Frances McDormand and others, has two wins for the league category. Uh, so Catherine Hepburn has doubled everybody else. Uh, she's at four. But McDormand could come within one. She could get her third this year. Yeah, it could be amazing. And uh, Gary Oldman, which is interesting, for years, underrated actor, right? Never gets nominated. Now he's always getting nominated. He joins Bradley Cooper, Denzel Washington, and Leonardo DiCaprio, the only four actors with three Best Actor nominations this past decade. Only Oldman and DiCaprio won one of those nominations. Mank has the distinction, Ben, of leading the categories, all of them with 10 nominations, yet I don't know how many it's going to win. Maybe in some of the technical categories, obviously the Academy appreciates the old school feel, black and white, et cetera. But how about Gary Oldman's late career renaissance? Yeah, it, it's something. You know, it starts with this Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy nomination back in 2012. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the last few years, you've got an Oscar win for Darkest Hour, and you've got him leading the movie that is the only one to come out with more than six nominations, let alone Mank getting 10. Uh, and so he's become uh, a key piece of the Oscars in the last decade, all of a sudden. Yeah, it's going to be amazing to see. Um, I just want to ask you a little bit about you, Ben, the fact that you've got your book, Oscar Metrics, the map behind the biggest night in Hollywood. You've used math to have this incredible accuracy of predicting the winners, and your movie buffs in childhood. I'm just curious, what are some of your favorite movies? From all time, uh, my favorite is Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, uh, one that... Perhaps you don't hear as often at the top, uh, but a number of other great ones. I love 
Back to the Future and Casablanca and The Sixth Sense and Fiddler on the Roof and Gone with the Wind, Sound of Music. I, I, I could go on and on. I'm surprised you're uh, – that's interesting. It's a very eclectic list. You like Capra then, obviously. You're a big fan of the Capricorn. There, but Jimmy Stewart is your favorite. I, I am, and It's a Wonderful Life is also a top ten for me. Uh, so so I'm, a, I'm a sucker for those feel-good stories. Well, I'm with you on Casablanca. I mean, we'll always have Paris. I, I cannot dispute anything about Casablanca, one of the all-time greats. Um, what is it like Oscar Day? How many friends are texting you going, Ben, Ben, what do you got for achievement in sound? Come on, give me a hint. Or do you just tell them, hey, listen, I, I'm tweeting it. Just follow the Twitter. Leave me alone. <laughs> oh, it, it happens all the time. And I love that stuff. I mean, the, the reason that I tweet about the Oscars, the reason that I write about the Oscars is I love talking movies with people. And so uh, that's always one of the most fun parts of this for me every year is all the conversations that inevitably flow from this. Well, I admire your passion, your accuracy, your brilliance, because honestly, there's nothing better than following your tweets and all this uh, fountain of information that you have. You can follow Ben at Ben's Oscar Math on Twitter. Once again, the man's name is Ben Zalsmer. He's currently the director of baseball analytics for the New York Mets. So uh, congrats to Lindor. Go Mets. And cannot wait for the Oscars and all that you're tweeting. Thanks so much for the time, Ben. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Mount Rushmore. All right, so the Mount Rushmore worst Oscar-nominated movies. Why not? Just for fun, right? The great list that Joe put together. I'll make this easy. Forrest Gump, obviously, best picture. That's one of the worst of all time. You knew that was coming. Just an incredibly, overly sentimental, cloying, fake movie. Uh, Driving Miss Daisy, I know, gets a lot of hate. I'm not going to include it. It could be. Crash, definitely not a great best picture. Uh, Brokeback Mountain, definitely should have beat that movie, but I'm not going to include that one. Just throwing it out there for you. Dances with Wolves, absolutely. Best picture of a good fellas is egregious. So there's two so far. Forrest Gump for best picture. Dances with Wolves for best picture. Two of the worst ones ever. Now it gets a little interesting. Bohemian Rhapsody, best actor. Again, awful. I like Rami Malek. There's no chance he should have won. So there's my three. Now it gets tricky because I go, okay, where can I get another one here? I'm going to go the blind side. Best actress, Sandra Bullock, is pretty awful. Norbit is in the mix here for best makeup. But honestly, this will be my fourth choice. The movie, extremely loud and incredibly close. It's so false and contrived. And it takes subject matter, which is very serious about 9-11, and tries to make it into a movie. And apparently the book's pretty good. The fact that it got for best picture, as I would tell people, the title should not have been extremely loud and incredibly close. It should have been extremely obnoxious and incredibly shitty. That is that movie. And that's one of the worst nominations ever. Best actor for Max von Sydow and best picture. So there's my four. Extremely loud and incredibly close. Dances with Wolves. Forrest Gump. And my fourth option was Bohemian Rhapsody Best Actor. But I'm telling you right now, I can make a case for the blind side being up for Best Picture. That's a joke. Sandra Bullock winning. And even just to prove that I'm uh, an open uh, opportunity artist here, I adore Pacino, but I don't know if Sentinel Woman should have up for Best Director. Like pretty, pretty bland directing there from Marty Brest. And you could argue Norbit should not have been nominated for Best Makeup. Although maybe you could argue, you know what? That is the one redeemable quality of Norbit. It was pretty good makeup. Joe? I really like your list. And I'm going... To back you up with Bohemian Rhapsody, 
I hated that movie, Adnan. I despised it. It, it was PG Queen, as I've called it in the past. It, it's not the acting. Remy Malik was fine with it, but his fake teeth kind of took me out of it. He doesn't sing the songs. Live Aid didn't happen like that. The phones just didn't start ringing when Queen got on stage. They didn't save Live Aid. Uh, so that's definitely on the list. I'm also going to do, I'm not going to go with Dances with Wolves, but I am going to go, and this might be controversial, with Avatar. Only because I've seen that movie before when it was made as Dances with Wolves. And then I saw that movie again a few years later when I watched The Last Samurai. Visually stunning. The 3D was incredible. But I'm going to throw Avatar on that list. And then I'm going to go with Braveheart, Adnan. I've said this time and time again. I do not like this movie. It's a bad movie. The score's bad. It's dated for all the reasons that you might not like Forrest Gump. I don't like Braveheart. Mel Gibson's acting... You know, his off-camera issues aside, uh, his accent's bad. I go there for the fight sequences, but I, mo- I watch a movie like The Running Man for the fight sequences, too. And then my last one is The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Uh, David Fincher, not one of his strongest pieces. The movie was too long. He took a short story by F. Scott Fitzgerald and made it just way too bloated. So my four are Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Braveheart, Bohemian Rhapsody, and Avatar. Love the choice of Ben Button. Definitely an overrated movie. I have no interest in ever watching again. Other options, Click, nominated for Best Makeup. Fifty Shades of Grey, Best Original Song. Flashdance actually won for Best Original Song. And there's definitely some options out there. Les Miserables, uh, Best Sound Mixing is a little bit ridiculous. Waterworld was up for Best Sound. Suicide Squad actually won for Best Achievement in Makeup and Hairstyling. So there's definitely been some bad nominations along the years. Thanks so much for listening. This was a lot of fun. Special Oscar recap more cinephile coming up i will watch my octopus teacher and i'll see you at the movies the headlines remind us daily the world is a dangerous place the elites in charge say everything's fine stop noticing But you know better, and your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour 3-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com